0: Good morning, everyone. Maybe I shouldn't shout. Um, Hey, just imagine if the Broncos had been in a home game, playoff game today. That would have been a huge mess. So it's good that it didn't happen. But football season is wrapping up soon, and I just want to use one more football illustration um, before we end this season. And so are you familiar with the concept of the playbook Is not a new concept to you, perhaps? But in football, every team, every offense has a playbook, which is literally a book of their plays that they run as an offense in order to try to advance the football down the field while the defense opposes them in that and tries to stop them from doing that. So that's their plays. It's how they approach the game, how they play the game. And as maybe you know, these are often very secret things. They're secret books that... They don't want the other team to know about, um, because maybe they'll have a trick play that if they ever need it, they could pull that trick play out to try to get the ball down the field and you know, get the defense thinking, oh, they're going to go this way. But oh, trick, ha, we're going that way. And that's how they score a touchdown. So you're familiar with these things, I'm sure. And you know that the playbook has to fit within the rules of the game. And the rules are set and determined, and they're fixed, and each team has to agree to play by those rules. That's how it has to work, right? And then there's this guy, a referee, who is saying, nope, blow the whistle, throw the yellow flag. That is not allowed in the rules penalty, right? So there's an enforcement of the rules. So these, the playbook has to be played within the rules. You know, like there's blocking rules, and you, know, you can only pass the ball down the field one time rule. Um, how many people you can have in the field rule. You know, there's all kinds of rules, and the teams agree to those rules, and then they set up their plays and their playbook accordingly. Well, here's where you can insert your favorite team and say, oh, the team we're playing today, they don't follow the rules. It's your opportunity right now. (laughs) But since I have no skin in the game this year, I don't have any judgment on any of the teams. Well... If I can take that playbook idea and apply it to our lives and to us and to culture and how we operate, not just in the game of football, but in a sense the game of life that we're all living. I've been recently fascinated by this cultural phenomenon of the hashtag Me Too. Have you noticed what has happened with this? It is as if there's a time in our culture where the rule book allowed for abuse to be taking place. It allowed for covering up and dismissing. allowed for power to be in play. And oddly enough, some people saw that opportunity, and they wrote their playbook to include abuse as part of what they do. So we've heard about some of our big, huge public figures like Harvey Weinstein and Matt Lauer. that They were playing by a playbook to get what they wanted, and culture and the rules was allowing it. Until, hashtag me our nation has risen up and said, no, we're not going to allow this. We're not going to go for that anymore. And we reset the rules and the parameters that we're playing by. So your playbook isn't allowed anymore. You've got to change and come into this correct way, according to the new rules. And maybe, in the past couple weeks, this is getting harsh, I know, I started so light with football, but um, you may have heard about a pastor who stood up at his church and confessed that he abused one of his youth group girls, you know, 20 years ago, and it was in something that happened, and, and at that time, the church, which this is a little bit of the disappointment, the church at that time dismissed it, you know, the girl came forward And the leaders of the church dismissed it. They covered it up. They moved on. And what's kind of sad about hearing this is that this guy stood up at his church to say, hey, I confess that I did this. Maybe you heard that the church stood up and gave him a standing ovation, which is very confusing. You know, here you have Harvey Weinstein. He was fired. Matt Lauer fired. This guy stands up and gets a standing ovation kind of sad. I think the first thing that's sad about it, as I observe this hashtag me too, is that the church seems to be operating not from God's playbook and his guidelines, but instead is operating from the culture's guidelines and rules and the playbook of culture. That's kind of sad that the church is participating in that way. And now it's even more sad as I think about this situation where they gave this guy a standing ovation. It's as if the church is operating from this old system, this old cultural model that allows for abuse and how we cover it up. And now the culture has moved on. The culture has actually gotten more moral, and the church is lingering behind. It's kind of, these are sad things, but hopefully it's setting up this idea this morning of what is the playbook that we play by in how we live our lives. Can I just say, we as the church are different. We are different. Culture does not determine the parameters that we live by and the playbook we play with. Yes, of course, as citizens of the nation of the United States of America, we follow the laws, the regulations, we follow the rules. But we have something different. As citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we are playing by God's guidelines, playing by his playbook, and it's guiding us in what we do each and every day. So in this series, Living is Giving, <clears throat> we've been in this series where we talk about this idea that is fundamental to who we are as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that every inhale is a gift from God, and every exhale is a gift is for God, and that's very just fundamental to who we are as the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It's our identity, and that begins how we approach life and how we play the game of life. So in the last couple of weeks, first Susie talked about how citizens of the kingdom of heaven, of children of God, that we are not just takers who take, 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 but that we are givers who give, and we have this outlook on life that we want to see the places we are, and how do we give to that, not just take? Then last week, Susie showed us that our end goal is not efficiency or success as culture defines it, but rather, our end goal is faithfulness. Faithfulness to God and trusting him with the results, leaving the results up to him now today, I want to keep this conversation going about living is giving. I want to talk about how our citizenship in heaven means that we play by God's playbook. Last weekend, right here in the parlor, our staff and elders did a a retreat, our kind of annual retreat, where we look out at the year ahead and what we're going to do and plan and prepare. And a part of what we did was we began by asking the question, what is the purpose of of church. It's us going back to the basics, making sure that as we proceed into the year ahead that we are playing by God's playbook, that we're following his rules and regulations, that we are proceeding as God wants us to proceed, that we are in alignment with God. So kind of a fundamental question as we move forward. And to set up this question, I first asked this other question, what is the purpose of a cranberry marsh? Now, some of you may know that a cranberry marsh is a place where cranberries are grown, much like a farm, except it's called a marsh. And you may also, that's what a picture of a marsh looks like. And um, you also may know that I am a fifth-generation cranberry grower. I didn't grow up on a cranberry marsh like my mom, but I was around cranberry marshes. I worked on them in the summer. And here's a picture of my grandpa, Russ, and his dad, Oscar, out on the marsh, So I love that. That sits in my office. So cranberries are important to me. Um, But here's the question. What is the purpose of a cranberry marsh? And your initial answer may be to grow cranberries. But while that is an important function of what cranberry marshes do, that is not the purpose that cranberry marshes exist for. I mean, if you look at cranberries just this past year, There was such a bumper crop of cranberries that they didn't have enough storage to take them all in. So as a result, they had to dump perfectly good cranberries this past year because they didn't have a place to store them. So if you think about it, the purpose of cranberries marsh is not to grow cranberries and then dump them. Purpose of cranberry marsh is to grow cranberries to provide cranberries to people to be eaten and nourished by. That's the purpose, to nourish people with this fruit. So, as a fifth generation cranberry grower, um, I have seen how the methods of a cranberry marsh have changed over the year. Even in my short lifetime, I have seen a change in how cranberries are grown, how they're harvested, how they're used. I mean, back in the day, what I mean, cranberry jelly, that's it. But now you have cranberry juice and craisins and You make all kinds of things out of cranberries. They've developed how we use cranberries. So over time, the methods have changed, some of the uses have changed, but the purpose has always remained the same. So for example, 150 years ago, think about how people harvested cranberries. Here's a picture from Cape Cod. People hand-picking, using their fingers to pick each individual berry, put them in the bucket. That was one method way back then of how they picked them in order to deliver them to people to eat. But nowadays, this is a huge shift and jump forward, here is a berry pump. This is made at Paul's um, machine shop in Warrens, Wisconsin. And that right there just sucks the berries out of the water, it cleans them, puts them in the dump trailer, and then it can take them over to the receiving station where they can be processed right away. Huge development technology-wise. But the purpose of the Cranberry Marsh... Has always been the same, to provide cranberries for people to eat, be nourished by. Well, then that, with that in mind and thinking about that, what is the purpose of church? What is the purpose of church? You might say, oh, well, it, the purpose of church is to gather on Sunday, even on snowy days. And that's something we do. That's a method. That's a practice. But that's not the purpose. We don't gather just for the purpose of only gathering. Or you might say, ah, well, it's these groups, you know, we're launching these groups, and it's the purpose of church is to gather these people into smaller groups. And again, that's a method, that's something we do, hopefully it's a good practice, but it's not the end purpose. You might even say, well, the purpose of church is to be the hands and feet of Jesus feeding people and taking care of them and providing shelter on a cold day like today. But even that is A method. It's something that we do. It's not the end purpose. You know, these are, in a sense, the plays in our playbook that we're playing by, but the purpose is something bigger. The purpose of the church is to love God, love one another, and love others. Love is at the center of what the church is and what it's doing and why it exists. So if you think about Loving God, you know, that's kind of a direction of up, that we love God, and that's an up direction. And in our loving God, we can worship God. So the things we do are sing songs to, to remind ourselves of who God is, what God is like, how God thinks about us, his care and attention to us. That's us worshiping. You also think about what we're teaching. We're teaching and reminding and helping us understand what it means To be a child of God. And how do we live that out? And that's us kind of focusing up on God. And it's the sense that we are receiving from God so that we can then go out and give. You know, it's our identity that we receive and know who we are so that we can live that playbook in our daily life. So up, loving God, or loving one another. And that's kind of the here, the people gathered, the around us loving one another and throughout the scriptures you can read all these spots where there's one another's like encourage one another love one another and in order to do this one another purpose you have to be close you have to know each other I mean you just think about if I'm standing outside and I have met you for the first time and I just encourage you in a very generic way You know, how does that land as far as encouragement to your soul? Yeah, it's good. You're glad for it. But it doesn't get you at the depths and encourage you. But if you are somebody I know, and I know your story, I know what you're going through, I know the hard things happening, and then I can speak encouragement to that, knowing all that history, I can say, you know what, I know this has been hard, and this is difficult, and I know you can't do it, but I believe in you. You can God's for you in this. That kind of encouragement is because I know you, and it's going to stir from the depths of your soul and actually be resonant encouragement in your heart. So to love one another, we need to be around each other, to care for each other, to encourage each other, to remind each other what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and to go out and live that way and do it no matter what the cost, what the hardship And then third, loving others. That's the out. We have this great commission to go and make disciples. That it's not just us gathered, but God is wanting us to push out and say, who's out there that does not know this love of God, who is not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, who needs to receive this connection to their creator once again? So we get this out sense through the scriptures of, you know, shine your light out. Be a light. You know, be something so you can taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, that we want others to experience the ridiculous love of God and be citizens of heaven. So there's the purpose of the church. What about for you? If you take it from this church level down to the individual level, you know, what is your purpose? I thought it was fascinating last week when Susie said, in the last 15 years— There's been um, five times more books written about changing the world than in the whole hundred years prior. Our culture, the playbook that our culture is running by and operating from, is obsessed with this idea of change the world, do something great, be the best you. It's obsessed with those things. So when we come to this question ourselves, we're kind of wondering, what's my purpose? How do I fit? And these questions that culture's asking kind of come to us. But I can, can I just say that as we, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, face this question of what is your purpose, it's the same purpose as a church. You can know your purpose. To love God, love one another, love others. Now, How you apply that, the methods that you apply to doing that, maybe your specific job or your specific passion area, all those things, those can look very different amongst the group gathered. But each of us has that same purpose, to love God, love one another, and love others. So this morning, I want to dive into a parable that Jesus gave us, and it's a very interesting parable that I've wondered about for a long time but it really reveals the playbook that Jesus is living by and how it's different than the cultural playbook of that time. So in this parable, um, it's known as the parable of the talents or the parable of the ten minas. Um, And this is one way Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom of heaven. And if you're familiar with the parable of the talents, maybe you've heard a reading of it, an interpretation, that says, hey, Whatever God gives to you and entrusts to you, put to good use. You know, that's a message that is very common coming out of this parable. But recently, I've come across a reading of this parable from Central America that has really resonated with me and seems to answer some of my questions about this parable. So this morning, I just want to walk through this parable, looking at it through the eyes of the Central American interpretation of this so, Luke nineteen, eleven through 27 is where it's located. This parable also exists in Matthew 25. We're looking at Luke, Luke 19. So, here's how it begins. While they were listening to this, he, Jesus, went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So here we're getting the setup, the context for the parable. And simply that Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem, Jesus is about to be crucified, all that is ahead of Jesus in his mind, and he knows that. That's the playbook he's living out. But the people, what he's noticing is that they are playing by the Roman playbook the people around Jesus are expecting that Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem and he is going to just throw Rome out. He's going to confront them on their terms. He's going to play by their playbook and rise to power. But as we know, Jesus doesn't follow that plan and has a different plan in place. We go on with the beginning of the parable. Jesus said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to find him to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. and He said, put this money to work until I come back. Here's what's interesting. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. So as we begin this parable, it's setting it up in this context, that there is a bad guy, a bad king. We don't like him. The people hate him. And why do they hate him? They hate him because he is abusing the people. He is collecting unfair taxes. This is a bad guy who's in power. And this part, this little description right here, Jesus is not making this up. If you read Craig Blomberg's book on interpreting the parables, Craig says this is exactly what happened after Herod the Great died and his son, Archelaus, followed him and went to Rome in order to determine himself to be the next ruler over Judah. So he, in 4 BC, went for imperial ratification of his hereditary claim to the rule of Judah. Isn't that interesting? The people are reading, hearing this parable, and they're like, oh, <laughs> yes, that sounds like Archelaus. Because you know what? When he went to Rome, a whole bunch of us went after to go to Rome and say, Rome, we don't want this guy. So Jesus isn't making this up. This is the context that the people have in their mind as they're hearing the beginning of this parable. Jesus goes on. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. And the first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. <laughs> well done, good and faithful servant, the master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. <laughs> What's fascinating is that this king guy is a bad guy. And here the first guy... He's taken that mina and he's extorted, he's collected unfair taxes, he's abused the people, and now he's gotten ten more, or nine more to make ten. So he is just following the playbook of the king. He's doing this really bad thing in order to benefit the king. (laughs) Of course the king is going to be like, well done, you're just as bad as me and I'm now profiting, hooray, good for me. To have you on my team. You know, if you play along with the game, you'll get rewarded for it. And then the parable goes on when a second guy servant comes and says, "Sir, your mina has earned five minas more." And his master answered, "Well, you take charge of five cities." And here's just another affirmation of someone who's playing by the king's playbook, who's following the king's ways, doing what the king wants. He also is a bad guy because in order to make those minas, he's abusing the people, collecting unfair taxes. Now we come to the third servant. Come to this third servant. Another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you, because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in, and reap what you did not sow. Boom. Here's a guy who's saying, no. I refuse to play by your rules. I'm unwilling to do what you do. I refuse. And yes, he was afraid. He was afraid there's a cost, there's a consequence but he would not do what the king wanted him to do. And here is the hero in our parable. Somebody who is not willing to go along and do what the king wants, but someone who's willing to stand up and say, no, that's not right. This is the way to live. (laughs) It's fascinating. The third servant calls out the king and is like, hey, king, you are trying to reap what you did not sow. That's not right. Blomberg points out in his book that in that time, in that culture, Jewish law, the thing you should do when you were given money to keep safe for someone was to bury it. So back then, they didn't have a bank. So if you were leaving town, you know, you give this money to somebody to keep it safe, the thing they were supposed to do, the right thing, was to bury it, keep it safe, protect it. So when that person comes back, You can give it back to them. To risk that, to invest that money, that was foolish back then. Just the way they operated and how they saved money, how they kept it safe. So this guy says, no, king, I'm not going to play by your rules. I'm going to do what is the accepted thing in the Jewish law. (laughs) Here's the king, he's expecting something different, right? He's, like, shocked that this guy refused him. So, the master goes on. His master replied, Well, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in, reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit So that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest. Of course the king is upset. Of course he condemns the third man. He didn't do what he wanted him to do. In our world now today, we call this civil disobedience. Not doing what the king wants. And what does the king want? He's playing his cards. He's like, hey, I just want more. My playbook is more. And here for this third servant, this comes at great cost, to refuse the king. And it's interesting because we now turn to what the crowd says. The master, the king says, Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. That's the rules of his game. And here's what the crowd said. Sir... He already has 10. Isn't it interesting? It's like the crowd is like beginning to come in and say, wait a second, maybe this guy's right. Maybe the rich shouldn't always get richer. Maybe the poor shouldn't always get poorer. Here we see how the king takes care of his own, and those who refuse him pushes off to the side. Jesus is teaching his followers, that you don't need to play by those rules. Jesus is about to go to Jerusalem, where he is going to, by his life, demonstrate not playing by Rome's rules. But he is establishing the kingdom of heaven through what he is going to do. Jesus' message is that those who refuse to go along with the king's way, and instead follow God's playbook, God will take care of them. Yeah, if you want to play with the king, the king will take care of you. If you want to play with God, God will take care of you. And finally, in wrapping this parable up in a very harsh way, we finish with the king saying, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. There's the playbook. And in addition, (laughs) but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Ah, that's pretty ugly. The king saying, hey, here's my game. If you don't play along, I'm going to power up and take you out. Which is such a different message than what Jesus is saying. And what Jesus teaches us about the kingdom of heaven. I think this is so insightful, this reading of this parable. Because it shows how Jesus is inviting us to live with him. To not just live in culture and by the world's rules and play, you know, what you can get away with or, you know, over here. He's saying, hey, play by my rules, follow me, live out my playbook. I will take care of you. Our purpose is to love God, love one another, to love others. And for us citizens of heaven, living is giving. Living is giving because every breath we breathe in is a gift from God. And every exhale is for God. Citizens of heaven are not playing by the world's playbook to take whatever you can get while the getting is good. Citizens of heaven don't have to take. What a concept. We don't have to take because we understand that everything we need for our life, our health, our well-being is given to us. We receive from God like taking in a breath, and then we give back freely, abundantly, because we know God will give us more. And this is how we join in God's ridiculous love being expressed on this earth. Well, in closing, and I know Matt might have to set up something for this video, um, but I have watched this documentary called God's Speed, and I want to just show you the beginning introduction of it and encourage you to watch the rest of it on your own this week because it really speaks to this idea of what is the playbook you are living by and inviting us in to play by God's playbook, as differently as that might be, but invites us into that. So I put the link, www.livegodspeed.org, in the sermon notes. But as you watch it this week, and if you would be so kind as to, after watching it, send me an email of what you think, what stood out to you. I would love to hear that, but one of the points that I heard was that the playbook of our culture is speed and fast and more, and God is a three-mile-per-hour God, just the idea that we walk at three miles per hour, and how different is our life experience when you're walking through life? rather than driving 60 miles per hour in your car, getting somewhere, walking, changes our perspective. I appreciated that in how I'm living in my playbook and approaching life. Well, hopefully, as we watch the introduction to this clip, um, it intrigues you enough to want to watch and prepares you to come to the communion table and consider what is the playbook that you're operating from. Let's take a look.
1: First met Matt. What was your impression? He meant well, but he didn't know quite what he was doing. I think we helped. I think they did help. I've been running for most of my life running through life to get somewhere else. But the thing about running is that you miss things, many things. And if I kept running, I was going to miss everything. 15 years ago, I was finishing seminary. I'd studied history, I'd studied Jesus. I was pretty sure I knew what I was doing. The truth is I was centuries away and miles away from what Jesus did and what I was supposed to be doing. When I was running, it was easy to stay hidden, to avoid being known. One professor knew this, Eugene Peterson. He said, Matt, if you want to become a pastor, go find a parish, go find a fishbowl, where you can't escape being known where you lose the fear of being known I think what I realized that nobody in America gets listened to very much I was surprised at how little people had relationships and when I and all I had to do was just sit there and listen I'd never worded, read anything on church growth I just started out going through the neighborhoods knocking on doors getting acquainted with people That's what started what I said to you. I just started looking, this is is my parish. He knew that if I really wanted to walk like Jesus, I had to slow down. I was like, Eugene, I'm in, I'm sold. Where do I go to learn to become this kind of person, this pastor? He smiled and he said, you might have to go further than you think. You might have to leave America. And I thought, that'll never happen. As it happened, my wife and I were invited to study in St. Andrews in Scotland. That's when everything began.